Welcome to the Royal Christian Centre Sermon Podcast. Considering what it is to not only know some answers and see how the Bible might speak into our everyday and the things that we uh, are wrestling with perhaps, but not not only to know answers but to be the answer. And of course we see that Jesus was perfectly, supremely, wondrously the answer to a world of need. Jesus Christ calls us to follow in his example and we were appointed this morning to a letter, first letter that Peter wrote in the Bible and I was recommending that each and every one of us uh, spend some time um, reading that. Um, as we move through the summer, we're going to go different places. Next week we're going to begin uh, looking in uh, the book of prophecy that Isaiah wrote in the Old Testament and we're going to begin that in the morning. In the evening next week actually, we've got a really great evening when we give our youth and children's prizes and each year uh, we give out some prizes uh, to our children and our young people. There are some specific prizes to encourage them on mission and so we're going to celebrate next Sunday night. Um, a little while after that, on the, at the end of the month, um, I, I think it's the 27th, it's the last Sunday in the month, we have the what? Is it the 30th? Oh, thank you. Thanks, Shagan. It's the 30th. I was way off. The last Sunday of the month, after our morning gathering, we head to Arrow Country Park, we have a picnic, bring some food, we barbecue, we have some fun and games, and we just celebrate our church. And and it's open to everyone who's part of our church, people you know who aren't yet part of our church, invite them along. There's no evening gathering that week. So morning gathering, celebrating lots of fun in the park, Uh, there's no evening gathering that week few weeks after that in August and we'll let you know more as it comes closer we have our annual Sunday Sunday and that is ice cream Sundays on a Sunday and uh, we have just loads of incredibly good ice cream as part of our evening it's a great opportunity to invite people along to get treated get spoiled uh, enjoy something sweet and fun and that is coming up in August and then at the beginning of September we have our annual Equip Church Conference and AGM that's the first weekend in September you'll be hearing more about that as we go along but this morning we considered as we drew to a close what it is not only to know answers but to be the answer I would encourage you to have a read of First Peter we found so much uh, truth and uh, so much insight and so much prompting and challenging of the Holy Spirit. And um, a few people were um, very uh, gracious and exciting and and they responded to me and told me uh, various ways uh, that God was really resonating with their hearts as we discussed this morning. One lady messaged this afternoon to say that she's been used by God in a few ways actually over recent days to be the answer. Uh, One way in in just in our town center, uh, meeting with somebody who was in real need, and she was able to to share Jesus with them uh, and lead them to faith. And another person in their place of work, um, and another person in their um, exercise class that they go to, uh, who's been asking questions. And they've been able to share not only answers about Jesus, but share Jesus, who is the answer. I was so encouraged to hear that. Um, really great testimony of somebody uh, who is uh, being the answer where they are. 
Another person this morning as I was walking um, towards the back, they said, do you know, that's really just confirmed what God is doing in my life and uh, something really resonating with me. Another person uh, this morning, they, they passed me their Bible. It's all right, I gave it back afterwards so they could have it. But um, they prompted uh, me to look at some verses in Habakkuk. And sometimes, you know, we, we sang just in that last song that we sang, that uh, all creation will proclaim and proclaiming the, the glory of our God. And uh, sometimes we, we, you know, we struggle because we long for it and we long for it yesterday, yeah? Is it just me that longs for God to fill all of his creation with his glory yesterday? That everybody would be a person of faith in Jesus Christ yesterday, please. I wrestle with that, I absolutely do. But this lady in our church, she pointed me to some verses in Habakkuk. And Habakkuk is the guy who Jesus, well, God said to him, the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. He said, this is going to happen. But then when we get wrestling with, with impatience and we get wrestling with these struggles of longing for Jesus, God also prompted Habakkuk to, to, to know this. He said, though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit beyond the vines. The produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food. The flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. If you're not sure, this basically means things aren't going well, okay? Everything isn't quite right. All of the fruitfulness that is longed for, all of the prosperity, all of the, the things, uh, all of these representations here that we know to be things of the kingdom, but Habakkuk says this, he says, Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord, is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. This morning we, we heard, didn't we, how beautiful are the feet who bring good news. You know, the feet of the person who brings good news. I think I want those feet. I'm not sure I want deer feet. I don't know. I think it would look a bit funny with hooves, wouldn't it? I don't know. But this idea that he makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on high places. That's what it's about. This ability to go. And go. But we can go because God gives us that capacity. God the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high, on my high places. God will do this. Therefore, I will rejoice in the Lord I will take joy in the God of my salvation there we heard it didn't we this morning in first Peter it's because God has called us out of darkness into his wonderful light that we get to proclaim we get to proclaim his excellencies declare his glory and so I was um I was so blessed with those of you that were sharing I keep on going in and out, don't I? I'll move my chair in a minute, shall I? Okay. Different ways uh, that God was um, prompting and, and um, motivating you. Mark, you had something that God was doing in your heart. And Go on, do you want to just... You can stand right there, that's great. But uh... last, no, last Sunday, sorry, last Saturday, I was driving down to Lanetley, minding my own business, early in the morning, and God met me on the road to Lanetley. My dad radio had packed up the previous day, so I was trying to listen to terrestrial radio, and that packed up too, um, being in mid-Wales as it does. 
and God prompted me to plug in my iPad. And the song that came on was this. It's by Casting Crowns. And this is where it comes into what we were talking about this morning. It's called What This World Needs. What this world needs is not another one-hit wonder with an axe to grind, another two-bit politician peddling lies, another free-ring circus society. What this world needs is not another sign-waving superhuman that thinks he's better than you, not an ear-pleasing candy man afraid of the truth, another prophet in an Armani suit. What this world needs is a savior who will rescue, a spirit who will lead, a father who will love them in their time of need. That's what this world needs. And I started to cry. Now, it's very difficult to cry as you're driving around the road at about 50 mile an hour <laughs> and make notes of what God's trying to tell you. And what God was trying to tell me is this. Revival's coming. Revival's on its way, in fact. And what we were talking about this morning, where we don't need to learn anymore. It's like, it's like we've had a steak dinner, and we've had too many steak dinners, and we're full of the gospel. And what we need is to give it out, because revival's coming. And revival will be no respecter of persons. It will happen in such a way that some people will say, this can't be of God, because, for example, in the early 1900s, there was a Welsh revival, which I believe is not yet finished. And it came to Birkenhead and it came to Liverpool. And there were men coming out of the pits, covered in their overalls and so on, and praying. And then they'd go on shift at the pits, go to church, go on shift, go to church, go on shift, go to church. Because it came out of their hearts it's not about, as Greg was saying this morning, it's not about what preachers know. It's about who preachers know. And it's coming a time where the Holy Spirit is coming through and we either get on the train or we get out of the way. So this was where we found ourselves this morning, that we've covered a lot of topics and we've learnt a lot. And those things are not without worth, absolutely not. Um, they're, they're worth a great deal. And I know for some of you, some of the topics we've covered, they're your, they're your lived reality at the moment. And some of the topics that we've covered are the means for you to speak life and grace and truth into the lives of others. But where we landed this morning was saying, we need to do that. It's not just enough to be equipped, it's that we must then be speakers of this life and of this truth and of this grace. And when we talk about things like revival, I'm always reminded that for something to be revived, it has to have lived. <laughs> and sometimes we need to be reminded that, that we have lived we have lived because of the grace of God, but we need reviving. So if that's where we end up this evening, I think that would be a good night well spent. But I'm willing to spend a little bit of time um, considering some of the ways that we might get there. What we're going to do is, um, you've got two ways of connecting this evening. One is um, by sending through messages uh, to the church prayer line. 
Hopefully most of you have got that number. So if you want to text something through, then you can do. Um, alternatively, um, you're up, are you? Excellent. Thank you, Martin. Um, Martin's got a microphone. So if you have a question about a matter of Christian teaching, about Christian life, about Christian witness, something about God, something about people, something about, well, anything really, um, then we're going to have a go this evening at understanding what the Bible has to say um, and seeing how then we ought to live. So, does anybody have a question? Anybody? This is like school. You're going to have to do it like school. You're going to have to pop your hand up, basically. Does anybody have a question? Maybe something that's been prompted by our sermon topic so far, or might be something that we've not covered at all. Any questions? Any questions at all? I've got one on the, on the phone. All right, well, let, while I read this question again, I'm going to get you to try and think a little bit because you're all looking at me with glazed over eyes. Do you all have a big lunch? Okay. Um, here's a question for you. Over these sermons that we've had recently talking about these different questions, what topic has most intrigued you or infuriated you or seems so, so good to you or, or, or seems so troubling still? So what topic is it? All right, so have a think just for a moment. Right, we're done thinking. Now talk to someone near you, okay? So what topic that we've covered over recent weeks has been most interesting to you? Intriguing, infuriating? Go on, talk amongst yourselves. Would you do that? Talk amongst yourselves just for a moment or two. What topic that we've covered has most interested you or troubled you? Go on, talk amongst yourselves. You're familiar with talking, yeah? That's why you open your mouth. And, okay, good, good, excellent. Good. Have a think, talk, discuss amongst yourselves. Have, have a little chat for a moment or two. All right. All right. Okay. So I've got a couple of questions that have come through by text. Um, so, oh, hello. Um, there's a few more coming through. Slow up, slow up, easy, easy. <laughs> All right, okay. So, um, so we had one, one question coming yesterday that was a question really, I guess, about medical ethics. Um, so the question was asking about what, 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 what is Christian teaching understanding? around organ transplants, um, which, is, which is one thing, but it kind of got me thinking about a lot of kind of medical ethic questions because um, I, I know many of you perhaps are, are more qualified to speak about such things than I am, um, certainly in terms of practicals um, and, and the, the medical aspects. Obviously, things advance a pace, don't they? Medical science, medical ability advances very, very quickly. Um, and for the vast majority of it, we're incredibly thankful. I, I would suggest to you that organ transplantation is a, is a supremely good thing. I, I'm not sure why we might think it's a bad thing, except for when we think about resurrection and we think about our bodies being resurrected from the dead. You might worry if you've not got a liver anymore. Um, I shouldn't worry about that. I think if God could create people from dust, he's probably got it covered. And uh, you don't need to worry about if you let your organs go after death. 
Um, God's all right about that. Some aspects, though, of medical ethics do raise some thorny problems um, for the Christian. Um, there are moves, of course, uh, to create um, various kinds of embryos, are there not, um, so that we uh, who are alive might benefit um, from such aspects of medical science. And there it is that I think that we very quickly come to um, the movement of science that we cannot find license for in the scriptures. I think the Bible's very clear, isn't it, that it's God who creates. Is it not? I think it's God who created in Genesis. The Psalms teach us that uh, God is intimately involved in the creation of every human life. The Bible teaches us clearly that God knits us together in our mother's wombs. The Bible teaches us that actually we are not on this earth simply because of the will of our parents even, but that we are on this earth by the will and the design of God. And I think when we start to move apart from that, even with good intention, start to tinker with the creation or the disposal of life, then we move very far away from God's great plan. So I don't know whether there are any other questions about medical ethics, but um, yeah, I mean, that, that is a big area. Some of the other questions that have just come in, where are we? <laughs> Leon wanted us to go back to the question of what about the dinosaurs. <laughs> I, I, thought, I thought we covered that one. When we, when we did talk about creation, and we talked uh, just two weeks ago, didn't we? Um, we talked about creation and, and how it is perfectly possible to reconcile our scientific understanding, or, or for some of us perhaps our lack of scientific understanding, but how it's possible to reconcile that with the Bible entirely. Um, we kind of dodged the question of what about the dinosaurs, didn't we? The Bible doesn't really talk about dinosaurs, does it? Although the Bible does make some intriguing references to beasts such as Leviathan. Who knows? Who knows what Leviathan was or is? Loch Ness Monster, perhaps? No, probably not. Um, I don't know how you try and reconcile um, time scales and how things fit together. Um, I'm not sure any of us will ever get there completely. Um, but I think we, we talked a little bit about that, so I'm going to just skip that again, if that's all right, Leon. Um, we did have some other questions coming in. So here, here's, here's a question. Does the Holy Spirit leave a person who has believed and put his trust in Jesus? If yes, what are the conditions that the Holy Spirit leaves a believer that's a really interesting question. Sometimes I think as Christians, we get ourselves, um, we kind of find ourselves caught a little bit between the Old Testament and the New Testament, don't we? Has anybody ever found themselves caught there on that blank page in your Bible? And you're not sure which way to go. So in the Old Testament, the way that the Holy Spirit seemed to operate was the Holy Spirit would come upon people of God for seasons or times or tasks um, so you see that very obviously in the book of Judges. The Spirit of God came upon people like Samson or Gideon. And then he would, quite clearly, leave people. Oftentimes when they got things horribly wrong. 
or the anointing came upon Saul, for instance, didn't it? Because Saul was God's man to be that first king of Israel and lead God's people, but then the anointing left Saul as soon as God, as soon as Saul started to move outside of God's law and his commands and his blessing. And sometimes I think we still think that we're operating in that kind of scenario, but actually we are under a new covenant, as you know. We're not under the old covenant that was established through the law and through promise. Actually, we're under the new covenant in which the promise has been fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And it's a new covenant in his blood. As part of that new covenant, we see the working of the Holy Spirit. Now, the Holy Spirit works in the life of the believer in two ways. The Bible teaches that when somebody places their trust in Jesus, we saw it again in 1 Peter, a description of that, that we believe in our heart and confess with our mouth Um, then that's a means of us coming into salvation. But part of salvation is to be made new. It's to be regenerated, as it were. Sounds a bit like Doctor Who all of a sudden, doesn't it? But the idea is that we were dead. Although we were walking around, seemingly fully alive, we were spiritually dead. And there's a work that the Holy Spirit does to make us alive. Part of the way that the Bible describes this work of the Holy Spirit is that the Holy Spirit comes into our life at the moment of our conversion, at the moment of our being made new. And the Bible teaches that the Spirit of God is upon our life like a a sign or a seal or a guarantee that we are God's, that he is working newness in us, and and he will save us. The Holy Spirit is in the life of the believer in that way. You see, if you are genuinely saved, then God is genuinely in your life and he will not leave you, okay? And it's very, very clear the Bible is that salvation, if it is genuine, then it is for all time. It won't go, okay? I think sometimes confusion comes because uh, people perhaps profess trust in Jesus, but they've never actually been made new by God see they've never actually given their old life their old dead life to God and said would you put that properly to death and bury it please God I want the newness of life that it's yours so if you're genuinely saved then the spirit of God is in your life he will not leave you rather he will guarantee your salvation until the coming of Jesus Christ that that's very very important But we as Pentecostals, we believe also in in something, the word for it technically is this idea of subsequence. You don't have to remember that particularly. But what it means is that though the Spirit of God definitely comes upon every believer at the moment of salvation, there can also be and there ought also to be an infilling or a baptism in the Holy Spirit It's this Pentecost experience that those believers had at the beginning of the book of Acts. And then it's described over and over again through the book of Acts. Now, it might happen at the moment of salvation. It does for some people. They're also filled with the Holy Spirit in this powerful way. But for many of us, most of us perhaps, it's happened at a point subsequent in time. doesn't have to be can be at the exact same moment. Now, that filling of the Holy Spirit is something to be cultivated and nurtured and to be sought. The way the Bible describes it is not that we should just be filled with the Holy Spirit one time, thank you very much, great. 
It says actually be being filled with the Holy Spirit. It's an ongoing experience. If you've experienced something of the Holy Spirit, I would say to you, ask for more. <laughs> ask for more every day. Every moment of every day, be being filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, the, the Holy Spirit is not some kind of nebulous, kind of cloud, kind of gray, unknowable something or other. The Holy Spirit is a person of the Trinity. The Holy Spirit is God. He has personality. The ways that we know the Holy Spirit has personality is because the Bible says that the Holy Spirit comes to comfort you. The Bible says that the Holy Spirit comes to counsel you. The Bible says that the Holy Spirit comes to walk and work alongside you. The Bible says that the Holy Spirit can be grieved. The Holy Spirit can be quenched. The Holy Spirit is a person of the Trinity. Now, I don't mean just a person like you or I. The Holy Spirit is God just as much as God is Father and God is the Son, Jesus Christ. So... It's in 1 Thessalonians that we find this idea of quenching the Holy Spirit. In that context, it's because the Holy Spirit brings prophecy to the church. And the Bible says, um, don't uh, dismiss prophecy within the church. Rather, test it and see if it's true. If we simply just say, oh, what a load of nonsense, junk it, get rid of it, then the Bible says that we may quench the Holy Spirit. Now, are we making the Holy Spirit actually less powerful? No, we can't change the Holy Spirit. But we are, by our actions, by our heart attitudes, limiting the way that the Holy Spirit will work in our lives or in our church. So I would say, no, you cannot, if you are genuinely saved, lose the Holy Spirit from your life in terms of your salvation. But in terms of that, infilling that baptism that powerful um, presence of the spirit in our life we can either nurture that make space for that we can either be in partnership with the spirit or we can quench the spirit it's very possible to do that i hope that that's helpful for that question um there's a few more but i tell you what we'll come back to these in a moment are there any more questions does anybody want, want to ask a question tonight and you've not brought your phone <laughs> Any questions in the room? Oh, wow. You guys must, you, you know everything. That's great. Excellent. Uh, I'm very glad. Um, there's a couple more that have come in um, by text. So let's have a look at them. All right. Here's another question on medical ethics, I guess, in one sense, but it's quite broad. So what does the Bible have to say about euthanasia? What does the Bible have to say about euthanasia? Here you go. I'm going to get you thinking for a moment. Have a, think, have a think just for a moment. And then would you tell your neighbor what you think? Would you do that? Go on, tell the person you sat next to what, what you think. The, euthanasia. What do, what do you think the Bible has to say? Do, is there a Christian view? Tell someone near you what you think. How, how, you can talk about it a little bit. What have you come up with? 
What's that? Okay, all right. So we're kind of seeing euthanasia and suicide part of a similar, a similar dynamic, perhaps. Anything else? Oh, nobody wants to kind of put their head above the parapet just yet. The word that we have, euthanasia, um, it comes from Greek, two bits. The first bit, you, means good or well. And the second bit, thanasia, comes from the word thanos, which means death. And within Greek culture, so even at the time of Christ, perhaps uh, this still would have been there. Within Greek culture, there was this idea that there was some kind of nobility in, 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 a, in, a, in, in death at your own hand or your own time or your own choosing or, or you know, taking your own life for the greater good or something like that. Uh, it's something that wasn't just in their culture. You see it in a number of cultures, don't you? I don't know whether you've watched any war movies, Second World War movies, especially with the Japanese and the Pacific. And, you know, if things went wrong, they would throw themselves on their own swords, wouldn't they? How horrendous. We find this kind of thing in um, certain parts of the world, I think particularly of India, um, and thankfully it's becoming less and less common, but there used to be an expectation sometimes that widows would throw themselves onto funeral pyres if their husbands passed away. Now these things, there's something in us, doesn't it, that instantly rebels against that. And we think, that's just, that's not right. I would suggest to you that although the word seems to say good death or a, a noble death, that actually there really isn't any sense that that can be true. Fundamentally, death is bad and it's wrong. Uh, I, we get used to it very, very quickly. But death is not God's created will. Do you know that? Did you know that God did not create everything and create people with death in mind? Death is a product of sin and humanity's rebellion and what we call the fall. And death comes into our universe in so many different ways. Death in itself is a bad thing. But we know that until Jesus comes again, there will always be death as part of human experience. It's always going to be there. And death, more often than not, is very, very troubling. I was speaking with a lady, and her background is in nursing, and she works in the care of the elderly now. And I was speaking with her at the close of this morning's service, and we were talking a little bit about how people die. That's what we kept talking about in church. And uh, she was saying that in her quite... Uh, extensive experience there is a huge difference between those who die with faith in Jesus and those who don't it's my experience as well as a church minister I deal with death quite a bit and you see a huge difference between those who die with faith in God they're sure and certain for them it is, and, and for us it will be, the closing of a chapter and the opening of another. The Bible teaches us that to live is Christ and to die is gain. That if we're absent from the body, we're present with the Lord, which is far better. And so I would suggest that perhaps the only euthanos, the only really noble and good death is the death of the Christian. The Bible says that precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. God's present in that moment, gathering to himself his people. That's a good death. There's really no other good death. And I think 
the more that we seek to control death, the less we allow the work of God through death. Death, until Jesus comes, can be a powerful gift because death enables us to recognize our own mortality, our own limitation, our own ultimate need of God. I think there is a tragic moving within our society and culture to rest control, to try and rest control even of death to ourselves. We try and make it more and more palatable and try and take away the genuine struggle of death more and more. I opened my newspaper just yesterday and there was a big advert at the bottom about the opportunity to have a humanist funeral and how uh, actually you can just send away the body and you don't even have to have a funeral but just back will come back neatly packaged, the ashes. And you don't even need to think about death. You don't even need to think about loss or any of these things. And I know those things are tempting, aren't they? Because death is hard, it's troubling. The more and more we try to be in control of death, the less and less we actually are in control of our destiny. The more and more we think, well, if I take my life by my own hand, I will have some measure of control. The less and less we actually do have control. I think it's an absolute tragedy when a person feels that they have no way forward and no way out except to end their life by one means or another. But our Christian uh, gospel proclamation, and you must figure out how to do this with the people that you do life with, must be to say, there is a better way. And to demonstrate that. And not just to come heavy-handed or throw in those gospel grenades that we were joking about this morning and not to come at the point of a person's most desperate need but actually to be with people in their lives so that they don't come to those places of desperate need. So that you're speaking the answer, the hope of life. We might say that the Bible very clearly in those Ten Commandments said you you shouldn't take life. You shouldn't take life. And I think when we're talking about this in particular, we need to be saying, well, actually, that's God's gold standard. That's God's gold standard, that nobody should take life. That's something that we have to wrestle with in all of its different contexts and try and come to a consistent ethic of life. I would say to you, there's only one good death, and that's the death of a saint, because they go to be in glory. Any other kind of death is a tragedy. Mm. Um, there are a couple more that have come in on the text. Did anybody want to ask a question on the microphone? No? Any hands? How are we doing? You're just happy with other people texting them in, aren't you? How are we doing for time? We'll take, we'll take a few more. We'll take a few more. Um, <laughs> There's one here that the Bible says God does not judge, so what is judgment day? Well, I would say the Bible says God does judge, actually. Um, the, the Bible has a fun, there are, there are definitely two kinds of judgment in the Bible, two ways of judging. Um, and the Bible does say things like, judge not lest ye be judged. 
And the Bible does say, by the same measure of judgment that you use, you shall also be judged. And the Bible says things like, um, don't point out the speck in your brother's eye when you've got a great whacking plank in your own. Sort out your own plank, and then you'll be able to see clearly to help your brother. So the Bible is clear about some aspects of judgment, but then the Bible also says that if within the Christian community we find a brother or a sister in a place of sin, it's our responsibility, our obligation to show them that and to point out places of error and sin and lead them to repentance. That is a means of judgment. It's a means of judgment that is so, so good. The Bible has uh, moments, and you can find something perhaps in Ezekiel, where the Bible says very clearly to the prophet that if you see somebody in sin and you don't tell them, the Bible says in that context that that yes, they'll be judged for their sin, but that judgment, that, that, that blood, in fact, is on your head for not telling them truth. The Bible says the reverse. It says if you see somebody in sin and you go and speak to them, then you save them from that sin and from that judgment and from that death, then actually the reverse is true. That is something incredible that you've been a part of. Um, so there definitely is room for judgment. The Bible also teaches um, that in end times that the saints get involved in ultimate judgments, which is a very interesting idea that we might actually get to sit in judgments. And I know we probably think that sounds absolutely fantastic. Maybe we think, well, actually, I could do with sitting in judgment on some people right now. Thank you very much. Um, it's not really about that. I would suggest to you there are two big kind of categories of judgment for us as Christians. We are not called to judge those who have no connection with God. We're not called to make pronouncements over them. Rather, we are called to come into relationship with these people as a means of uh, teaching them truth, sharing grace, um, promising uh, what only God can deliver and enabling people to come to faith in Jesus. I think in a New Testament perspective, judgment is principally, if not exclusively, to be exercised within Christian community. So with those that you are genuinely doing life with, that does not give you a license to go around and pronounce judgment on anybody who comes to this church as and however you see fit. I would say there is only judgment in the sense of correction and enabling for people to come back to righteousness if there is already good godly relationship. And if you haven't built up that relationship, then would you please just zip it, okay? So if you don't really care about somebody, then don't pronounce judgment on them. Don't do it. You've got no right. You've got no right biblically to do that. So God does judge. God, yes. He is the judge. And, um, and he will ultimately judge all things. And, you know, we looked, didn't we, um, when we were talking about hell the other week, Jesus gave the illustration of the shepherd judging between the sheep and the goats and separating and talking about the lifestyle of those who belong to God and how that righteousness um, is a part of them coming into his kingdom. But how for those who are not made righteous by God 
act in that manner and they go, as the Bible teaches, away from God and to a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. There definitely is judgment in the Bible, but we definitely have to exercise that properly. Um, we'll take a couple more, shall we? Any, any, any more questions out there? You will. Thanks, Johnny. Get a microphone and everything. I know. One, two, one, two. Okay. Um, obviously, we know God is good, but if God created Satan, and obviously God is um, outside of space and time, did he not think, looking at time later on down the line, going, ooh, this guy's not going to be too good. Maybe I should scrap that and not create Satan. Yeah. And yeah. yeah, okay. Why? Why? Yeah, why? Okay. It's kind of helpful, actually, to kind of think about names to, for, at the get-go. So we, oftentimes, when we're talking about the devil, we, we use the word Satan. Now, that's a name that means the accuser. Um, and so God didn't create Satan um, in, in that sense. God created an angel. And so the Bible uses another name, this name Lucifer. And Lucifer, um, the word means the carrier of light or the bringer of light. And so many people speculate many things about how Lucifer was in creation. And we see little glimpses and, and, and hints in, in the scriptures talking about him as, as, a, as, a, as, a, as a morning star and this brightness and this beauty in his creation. Um, some people like to speculate that he was a part of the, the means of the worship of God in the heavens. Um, although that, I think that just is just blatant speculation. <laughs> but it is clear as we read the scriptures and we read in Genesis and we read in some of the prophets in the Old Testament. We read um, the, from the lips of Jesus as he talks about Satan. And then we read in Revelation. And we try and piece it all together and timelines are very tricky in that but it is clear that there came a point of rebellion and there came a point of pride and the pride of Lucifer as was Satan as is um, was that of seeking equality with God seeking his own rule and reign over his own existence but then also drawing others away and, and certainly that is theme of the work of Satan so he drew others away in, 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 in heaven and the Bible teaches that there was this grand cosmic battle and Michael and the angels uh, loyal and right with God fought against Satan and his angels and a third of the angels fell with Satan, led away but also uh, polluted by pride and rebellion and that exact same sin came then into the garden the sin of pride and it's tempted with the question did God really say you won't really die you can be a master of your own destiny you can do what you want you can have it all you can have your cake and eat it and the pride comes in the heart of humanity in exactly the same way as the pride came in the heart of Lucifer 
and so comes the fall and so comes sin. Why did God create in such a way knowing all things as we believe God does know and being good as we believe God is? Why did he create in such a way? Um, ultimately, we can't know. We can't know. And this is one of those questions that you will not have a good answer on until you ask Jesus. <laughs> and, and I don't mean when you get on your knees tonight, because I don't think he's going to tell you then either. I mean when you come face to face with him in glory. Um, but on this question, the question of why create one who could become so wicked? And then why also create in such a way that this world might be led into wickedness? Although we have to acknowledge it was our own choice. I think what I'm prompted to is a recognition then of if God is good and he created perfectly and yet he knew that rebellion and pride and sin would come and the only means because the Bible teaches that sin came through a man, the first Adam and in the same way the remedy for sin comes also through God become man, the second Adam, Jesus Christ. If God knew all of this and he knew that it would cost his only begotten son, his most beloved, the one who the Bible teaches is the darling of heaven, the joy of all creation. If God knew that it would cost that and yet he still went through all of creation because he wanted you and I, not because he needs you and I, but because he wanted you and I, and he wanted you and I with free will, with the capacity to sin, with the capacity to choose against him, with the capacity ultimately to put Jesus upon the cross. And yet God still created us. I think then, whilst we may not know why God, I think it does lead us to a place of wonder. It does lead us to a place of love. It does lead us to a place of profound gratitude that God, knowing how things would transpire, knowing how things would move and change, knowing the cost, that incredible cost of the cross, the pain, the agony, yet he would still create you and me, knowing that we would cause him such pain, and yet he still created us and also planned the means of our salvation. So, I don't know. I, I, you, can, you can look at it logically every which way and say, isn't there a better way? Isn't there a better way? And I, there's a really great book actually, so ask me later and I'll, I'll, I'll point you in the way of that book. Ultimately, that author comes to the, to the conclusion that this actually is the best way because it's the means by which we can actually engage with God according to free will and know the fullness of his saving grace actually it's the best way um, so yeah it's a tricky one somebody else asked about Satan so hopefully we've uh, killed two birds with one stone um, how are we doing should we just take one or two more quick ones and then we'll draw to a close is that alright we'll, we'll come to a close really really quickly I've got a couple more here um, so there's one question here I'm not going to duck, even though it's a really tricky one. And I think I'm just going to open the question and look at it briefly. 
I think it needs a lot more unpacking. So that one question that someone's asked here is about what does the Bible say about divorce? Wow. You didn't expect something that uh, intense on a Sunday evening, did you? Okay. Where do we start? Um, the Bible has a very, very high view of marriage. Um, in Genesis, when Eve is made as um, a proper helper for Adam, and, uh, and don't think that that means that she's somehow lesser than Adam, that word helper is the same word that keeps on cropping up through the Old Testament, and then we find who is called a helper in the New Testament? Oh, the Holy Spirit. Uh, so, you know, <laughs> being a helper is probably not a bad thing, actually. Um, so we find Eve and Adam there. And, um, and the Bible says that actually, um, in describing how they come together in this union that we now um, represent with marriage, um, these lifelong unions, the Bible says, for this reason, man will leave his father and mother and become one um, with his wife. That word one there is the same word that then is used a bit later on in Deuteronomy when the people of God are told that the Lord our God is one. See, that word there in Deuteronomy is not saying that our God is one, he's not 27, um, or it's not like there's 346 gods. That's not what it means by one. What it, there is only one God. <laughs> but what it means is there is a total and complete unity within our God. Now, if the Bible then says that that is God's plan for marriage, for the union between a man and a woman, clearly the Bible has a very, very, very high view of what it is for a man and a woman to become united. That's why we teach very, very clearly that some of the things of marriage shouldn't be removed from marriage. So sex, for instance, is just for marriage. It's just a part of the union of a man and a woman in marriage. Now, the Bible teaches that very, very clearly. The Bible also then talks about the brokenness of human relations. You see, God knows that we're broken in many, many ways. That in every way, and so this is not just about marriage and divorce, but in every way, we cannot meet his standards. Think about your life. In what way? without the grace and the saving power of Jesus, have you met the standard of God? In what way have we? There is no way. The Bible teaches that all have sinned and fall short of God's standard of his glory. And one of the ways that we do this is in marriage. And so even by the time of Moses, God was providing laws and means for people to manage human relations. If you jump forward um, through some of the prophets who are told, and they're told this for human relations, but they're also told this um, for our relations with God. They're told that God hates divorce, and I think that's okay. I, I know some of you here, you've journeyed through that, or you have loved ones who have journeyed through that. I think for most of you, you would agree. You hate divorce too. And nobody likes it, and nobody wants it. And so we might agree with that statement that God hates divorce. Actually, that statement is more about people of God removing themselves from the love of God, uh, but it also is very true for human relations. And we get through then to Jesus, and then later on the Apostle Paul. 
And Jesus comes into a culture where the laws that God gave because people are broken are being abused by those people. And people are saying, oh, well, God doesn't really care about this. Or God doesn't really care about that. We can do this or we can do that. And so Jesus comes and he says, actually, I want to remind you of the very high view that God has of marriage. I want to remind you that God hates brokenness in relationship. And that includes divorce. Then, and we don't have the time to go through all of the detail, but we could look at it later and you can debate with me if, if you want to. I think when we read what Jesus has to say and then particularly when we add what Paul the Apostle then uh, speaks as the inspired word of God later, um, it is never God's plan for divorce. Of course not. It's never our plans for divorce. And anybody who is considering marriage must, must take very seriously the vows that they make um, that are till death us do part. However, in the brokenness of human relationships, we are aware that certain horrific brokennesses do come in. And I would suggest to you from my reading of scripture that when we are perhaps finding ourselves in or know of others in or are talking about relationships where there is abuse, adultery or abandonment, then the Bible does give grounds for divorce in those cases. Now that's actually quite limited. Within our culture, divorce is granted far more often for far more reasons. But biblically, I think we can see that, that God would permit divorce for those reasons of abuse, adultery, or abandonment. And, uh, and, and that's my reading of Scripture. Uh, there's an awful lot that flows from that. Um, but that is my reading of Scripture. Wow. Wow made the room go very quiet there didn't we it's an important question it's an important question I would point you back to recognizing what's the meaning of marriage does anybody know what the meaning of marriage is does anybody think that marriage is to make you happy I'm not being cheeky I promise marriage isn't a marriage is not a contract marriage is a covenant quite right and because of that, marriage is not to make you happy, it's to make you holy. <laughs> so anybody want to get holy? Uh, well, I ask God for <laughs> a spouse. Marriage, marriage is um, ultimately a beautiful representation of God's ultimate work. In heaven, uh, the Bible teaches that nobody will give or receive in marriage um, because the Bible teaches that the people of God who are described as a bride, so sorry guys, we're described as a bride, but we're all right with that because in the Bible, uh, ladies are described as sons of God. So if they have to deal with that, then we can be brides, all right? Uh, we are the bride and Jesus Christ is the groom. And the Bible teaches that the whole arc of history is tending and trending towards this point of the marriage of God's people with God. And God will be with his people and his people will be with their God. And Jesus, the Bible teaches, will be like the eternal son. And there will be not even a moment of darkness, let alone death or sin or brokenness or any of these things. Marriage now is intended to be a sign and a signifier of the marriage to come. And I would say to any of us who are married, 
Um, that's what we're about. And your families, therefore, become vehicles of mission. That's what families are for. Just like Abraham's family was a means of the mission of God. This is why family is given. It's not just so that you can create little mini-me's. Um, it's not. Um, although they are delightful. And, uh, you know, they are pretty fantastic. And, and it's not um, so that children might torment their parents and so that fathers might exasperate their children. It only says fathers in the Bible. What's that about? I don't know what mums get up to. Um, marriage is not simply for happiness, although it should be a part of it. Family life is not simply about procreation. Marriage is about um, the, the proclamation of God's intent for connecting with people. Families are means of God's mission so that all of the earth might be under his will. Um, who knew that marriage had so much meaning? It does. That's why it's so precious. Time has long, long gone. People are still sending in questions. We'll have to address them at another time. But um, one last question that came in was the question of, what is God saying to us as a church at this time? That's a big question, isn't it? That's a very big question. I would, um, in this moment at least, because God, we might say God is saying a thousand and one things, but when we're thinking about God's leadership of our church, it's important to find out, well, what is the one thing? Yeah? Martha busied herself with a thousand and one tasks, but Mary got at the feet of Jesus, and that was the one thing, the one thing that was required. So it's important for us also to know, what is the one thing? I would say again, can we return ourselves to what we looked at this morning? Um, we absolutely must know Jesus. And you say, well, I come to church, of course I know Jesus. Do you? Do I? Do we know Jesus? Are we genuinely in relationship with Jesus? And we talked just briefly about God's heart for marriage. And he is seeking a bride for this marriage a bride that is holy a bride that is prepared for him a bride that is full of his spirit a bride that is longing for his coming do we know Jesus? are we looking for his coming? is that the sole and signifying reason for our existence? if I were to ask your friends or your neighbours your husbands, your wives, if I was to ask your parents, your kids, why does so-and-so exist? What's the meaning of their life? Would they say they exist to know God and to show him, to glorify God in everything that they do and they say? Would that be what they would say about you? Would it be what people would say about me? Is that true for us? I know that's even more of a downer <laughs> than some of the tricky questions. I don't think it is actually. I think it's an aspiration. And it's aspiration of the spirit. Challenge yourself, Christians. Don't beat yourself up. There's no mandate for that. Don't do it. Don't do it. But challenge yourself. What would a person say about your life? Would they say, oh yeah, they're all about Jesus. Honestly, you can't shut them up. And they won't stop loving people because 
They're so much like Jesus. They're incredibly generous. They're so kind. They are not perfect, but I see them stopping themselves going towards anger. I see them stopping some things coming out of their mouth because they know it's not right. Is that what people would say about us? Would they say that we speak grace, love, truth? Christians, that is what this world needs. It is what this world needs. This world needs Christians who do what it says on the tin to coin an old advert. We cannot simply say, oh yeah, I do this or I do that or I am this or I am that. We must be it. We must be it. We must be the answer. I'm very conscious that time is gone. Long gone. Um, are you all right if we close it there? Would that be okay? Um, we're not going to sing as we draw to a close, if that's all right. Unless you really want to, in which case you can just start whenever you feel like it. Uh, just go for it. Uh, you know, hum, hum it and we'll all join in. Um, but can I pray over you? Just, um, what do we call it? It's a benediction, isn't it? We, we never really do this in church, do we? But let's, let's pray God's blessing upon our lives. Can we do that? Um, and I wonder, would you join me in this? And if you're all right with this and you think your neighbor is, just pop your hand on, on their shoulder and just pray a little blessing over them. We're wanting to be like Jesus. So pop your hand on someone's shoulder near you, if, if that's okay, and just say, God, help them to be like you. Help them to look like you and sound like you and live like you and love like you. Lord Jesus Christ, the challenge is great, but you are greater. Lord Jesus, the needs of our world are great, but you are the answer. Help us to be that answer, Lord Jesus, as we are filled with you and as we go in you. So may the Lord bless you and keep you. May he make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May the Lord turn his countenance, that beautiful, glorious face of brilliance upon you and give you peace. Amen. Amen. Well, God bless you.